the best things in life for free. If you subscribe to The Spectator, you'll get a whole month for free. And after that, you'll only pay a pound for full access to our website and to our app. And if you want to pay two pounds, you'll get our magazine too. To claim this offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts and today we are delighted to be joined by John Nicholl, a former RAF tornado navigator who was famously shot down during the first Gulf War and held prisoner by Saddam Hussein for seven long weeks. John has written movingly about his experiences in his first book, Tornado Down, and has gone on to write 17 more books since then, six of which are Sunday Times bestsellers, and the most recent is out now, called Eject, Eject. Luckily for us, he's also very fond of cooking and often posts pictures on social media of his culinary creations. So, John, welcome to Table Talk. Thanks very much, Olivia. Pleasure to be here and to chat about my favourite subject, food. (laughs) Well, it's lovely to have you. So we'll start at the beginning where we always do and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? Mince. Mince and potatoes. Uh, I grew up in a council estate. There were six of us in a three-bedroom house. Not much money, but we didn't want for anything as far as I can remember. Mince at home was on a Tuesday. Mince, mashed potatoes, carrots and peas. None of your garden peas. Processed peas out of a tin. And then on Thursday at school, it was exactly the same thing. Mince, (laughs) potatoes, carrots and peas. And I just love it. I I still do. I'm cooking tomorrow. I'm going to do a a beautiful mince pie with some luxury puff pastry, but I'll cook the mince for three hours or something like that. I still love it so much. Well, for what it's worth, my 18-month-old son, who's at nursery, that is still one of the regular dishes in their rotation. He Every two weeks, he has... Mince and potatoes. Mince beef, and mash and, and vegetables. So oh, He's going to grow up to be a fine East. fellow, let me assure you. I hope so, and with a good culinary inheritance. <laughs> and you grew up in the northeast of England, didn't you? Yes, yeah, just outside Newcastle, North Shields. North Shields. And how did that, apart from the mince... How did that sort of uh, affect your the food of your upbringing? You must have been quite close to the, the keys. Mm, yeah. Was there a lot of fish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, my dad and my uncle would regularly be down on the fish key kind of six o'clock in the morning when, when the trawlers would come in. Clearly, I don't, I'm not even sure there are any trawlers at the fish key now in North Shields. It's, um, it's one of those fancy places with fancy restaurants oh, yeah. and luxury flats. It used to be a horrible place. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just nearly 60, so I was born in 63. So in the 60s, the fish key was a really deeply unpleasant place. Uh, but no, I went on a school trip there in the 90s. To the fish key? Wow. Yeah. It would have had its transformation into something posher by then. To be yeah, I don't think it was quite as posh as it is now, oh, no. but it was, oh, it, it was, it was obviously worth a school trip. It is really now. I mean, really, the flat, luxury flats and everything are astonishing. Yeah. There's some beautiful restaurants down there, but fish, definitely. But I would say probably plain food by today's standards. Everything fresh, everything home-cooked. My mum was a stay-at-home mother. My dad worked in one of the big uh, industries, the engineering industries. And it would everything, it would be the same. So it'd be a roast on Sunday, every single Sunday, then leftovers on the Monday, whether that was chopped up or minced up or put in a casserole, mince on Tuesday, well, I can't remember, and then all the way through, fish on Friday, because we were Catholics, uh, fish on Friday, and then kind of, you know, something much more simple on Saturday. But it was 
fairly standard, but I learned to cook. Oh, my gosh. It's certainly in the 60s with my mum. I watched her cook. She did it. She, we never had bought bread. I used to crave going to friends' houses because they would have, what was that, sliced to sun-blessed or something like that? Sliced, blotting paper bread, which is disgusting. But we never had that. She would bake bread, bake cakes, bake scones or scones, as we call them. Everything was fresh. Everything was cooked fresh. Potatoes were grown in the little garden. Carrots were grown in the garden. Everything was seasonal. So you'd never have, uh, you would have boiled new potatoes, in kind of, you know, April, May, something like that. You would have roast potatoes later in there. You would never have roast new potatoes. That would be heresy. So it was kind of standard for the time, I think, for for my era. And the the mealtimes themselves, were they important to your family? Yeah, I mean, certainly Sundays kind of would be a fried breakfast before we all trooped off to church. Then Sunday lunch after kind of, you know, kind of one o'clock, on the dot, or as we called it in the northeast, that was dinner. Sunday dinner yeah, at dinner one o'clock. You, you, you had your dinner at what we now call lunchtime, but we called it dinner time, and you had your tea at five o'clock. Supper was a digestive biscuit and a, a glass yeah. of milk or something. Uh, I sound like something from Oliver Twist or something, don't I? But no, I mean, we would sit around. I mean, I'm the youngest of four children. And so by the time I have any real kind of memories, you know, my brother, both of my brothers left home and were working. My eldest brother was in the Air Force. So me and my sister quite a bit, who I hated at the time. We'd get on. (laughs) We didn't get on. But it was, yeah, family eating, sitting around. was a kind of classic northern council estate, working class kind of upbringing. You know, it was just... For me, it was all just normal. Dinner at dinner time, tea at tea time. And when you joined the RAF, mm-hmm. how did those meal times change? Mm. Well, so I joined in the ranks. So I joined as the equivalent of a private soldier in 1981. So I did five years in the ranks. And food defined your day. I mean, and it really did, especially as a, a recruit, kind of 17-year-old, where you are in quite a regimented space. You know, you kind of march off to breakfast at maybe seven, and it would be, you know, if you, you can imagine the serveries in the junior ranks mess, there'd be two serving exactly the same. But there could be four, five hundred, and it was all then young men, because training was kept apart, queuing up. And they would be, the, the serveries at breakfast would have, I'm going to say probably 10 to 15 stations, everything from fried eggs, scrambled eggs, fried bread. And the bread, fried bread was the yesterday's old bread, deep fried. It, it put in the deep fryer, sausages, bacon, beans, mushrooms, everything. And then a massive array of cereals, then orange juice. It was huge. And then lunchtime, 12 o'clock, which was then still dinner time, would, I'm going to say, <laughs> 20 choices on the servery easily yeah. and it was fant- it was really good food everything there would be a roast every day some sort of stew some sort of casserole some sort of chicken some sort of cobbler you know everything to pump you full of massive amounts of carbohydrates and calories and puddings there would be at least half a dozen choices of puddings steamed pudding you know, everything and then again at tea time and that would be five o'clock Tea time, well, there would be kind of sausages, chips, pies, chips, peas, you know, uh, beans. And that, that was, in the early days, the food defined where you were in the day, to be perfectly honest. Mm. And, but nothing was available. 
after your tea at five o'clock. You know, you had to, I don't know, go to the naffy or the shops or something if you wanted a bag of crisps or something. There was nothing available in the mess then as a recruit and as a in the junior ranks. Changed when I became an officer. Things changed drastically when I became an officer. Tell us, tell us about that. I mean, tell us generally and also oh. through the prison food. Uh, I mean, so how, how long did it take you to, to make that change? Uh, so I joined in 81. I did Five years in the ranks, I made the dizzy heights of corporal. I had a fantastic time. I was on a unit where we travelled the world. So as a 18, 19-year-old kid from the northeast, travelling the world, and we went everywhere, Kenya, Cyprus, Denmark, Belgium, uh, Florida. We just, we just went all over the world, and it was a fantastic way of living. I moved out of barracks at that time, and that's when I really started cooking for myself when I was maybe 19 or 20, when I shared a house with three other guys. But then being an officer, uh, you move back into the officer's mess, again, during training for 18 months, two years. And that's a very different experience. It is like Hogwarts. And again, back then, when I was at Cranwell, there might be kind of a couple of hundred officers. There was three messes. There might be a couple of hundred officers in each mess. And then when I went to RAF Finningley, which is Doncaster, there was probably three or four hundred officers in training, training to be navigators uh, or training to be multi-engine pilots. And that was, you know, that uh, oak panelled rooms. Uh, and that then was breakfast. So you'd go into breakfast. Generally, people didn't talk at breakfast. That was the tradition. You know, you would sit kind of reading the Telegraph or the Sun, depending on who got there first. Um, tea, coffee would be brought to your table in silver jugs. Um, a white-coated steward would ask, sir, what, what would you like for breakfast? Yeah. And you would order the same things that, that were had been on the servery five years before, but somebody would make it in a slight... It would still... And it was, you know, the, gold, the plates had a gold rim around them as well, rather than just plain white plates. Then lunchtime would be... Uh, maybe a three-course lunch. And the, back in the day, you would, you would have a drink as well. The bar would be open and you could have a, you know, people would go and have a pint, have a glass of wine, and then go back to work. <laughs> they did, you know, you would never do that now. But, you know, back then they did. And then you would have tea or high tea at maybe five o'clock. So you'd go into the anteroom of the mess and the toasters would be set up. You'd have toast and again, pots of tea and silver, silver servers. You'd have toast maybe a piece of cake, and then you might go and do a bit of work, revision, something like that, and then you'd come down for dinner dressed. So you would have, at the very least, a jacket and tie on. Regular, depending on what the night was, it might be a suit and tie for dinner. And you again, you would have a couple of drinks in the bar beforehand. Then you would sit down and again, three or four course dinner till maybe half past eight, nine o'clock. And then everybody would disappear. Because we were training, you'd go back and do another two or three hours work. So it changed completely. And that transition, was that something you were coached through? Were you taught, I don't know, how to eat from the outside in with cutlery or how did it work? Officer qualities. A bit, a little bit in that when we're going through training at uh, the college, RAF College Cranwell, which is where they train the officers back then. It was only kind of four months or something. I think it's nearly a year or something now. You certainly had lectures in officer qualities, and it, it wasn't, it sounds a bit pompous now, but it kind of wasn't. It was just so that people, there were traditions and, you know, the first formal dinners were terrifying. You know, when you had to then get, instead of having your suit and t- on, you'd have your formal mess dress with its gold and its bow tie. And they were scary at first. And you had practice ones. 
you had practiced formal dinners before you were allowed to go and have a formal formal you had dinner. To graduate. Yeah, yeah. For the yeah, you did. Wow. You really did. And um, so there was a bit of right. You know, this is the kind of the way we do things. Again, it's different now because it's people don't live in the mess now the way they did, and they don't have that formal the formal situations in the same way. It's very different now. But I'm talking about the mid '80s, and it was a very real part of military life. And we would have so. Mess life when I lived in the mess was fantastic, and you would have a formal dinner, uh, you know, a, a, sometimes with a member of the royal family, sometimes with very senior officers, sometimes with very important guests from you know Second World War guests, and you could have maybe 150, 200 people in the dining room on a top table with spurs, everybody sitting, chatting, a band playing up on the balcony or something like that. So it was an important part of life then, not so much now. Uh, so you, you qualified as a navigator, and then you were pretty unexpectedly sent to war. Yeah. Who would have thought, being in the military, <laughs> sent to war? Well, you, you didn't see it coming, oh, right? No, Your generation no, no. didn't no. see it coming. When I joined in 1981, the concept of war, the, the Falklands happened around that time, but it was a very distant war. Uh, and a very different type of war. And not many military people were involved. The raison d'etre of the military that I joined was the Cold War to stave off a, a Soviet Union attack. And our weapon of choice was nuclear weapons. And so when I transferred onto tornadoes, so when I was a young man, when I was, before I got commissioned, we were providing communications, secure, secret communications for various different outlets who would run the war. And then when I went onto tornadoes, our weapon of choice was a, a tactical nuclear bomb. It, it just was. And we rehearsed oh my God, almost daily, either missions for when the first wave of Russians came across the border where we wouldn't use nuclear weapons, but then within probably two or three days, we would have to resort to them to hold off the Soviet hordes before the Americans could get into Europe to help hold them back. So we prepared for a nuclear conflict. And the concept of a, a regional Normal? Can you use the word normal conflict? Was so far from our minds. Then the Cold War became a warm war. So the the Iron Curtain came down, and around that time, when we were all thinking, "What's the point of the military now? The Soviet Union's gone." Saddam Hussein's Iraq invaded Kuwait in August 1990, and it set in chain a set of a sequence of events that still affect the world today. And the young men and women who weren't born when I went to war are still affected by that now because we are still involved in those regions. Not, not, as, a, you can't, not as a causal link between the Gulf War in 1991, which many people would say was the last successful conflict we fought, but the sequence of events in the Middle East really did set in motion the way that the world is uh, now, to be perfectly honest. So I didn't expect to go to war. And when the alarm went, it was a bloody shock. But we, were, we wanted to go. We were Not because we were brave or stupid or warmongers. Uh, I likened life in the 80s in the military to being like a, a firefighter who never put a fire out. Mm. You trained, but you never thought there would ever be a real fire. And now here was a real yeah. fire and we were going to go. And it was bloody exciting. I mean, it was, it was scary, but it was bloody exciting to be involved in. So tell us about that conflict deployment for you. It would be fair to say you had some bad luck. Yeah. I mean, everybody wanted to go. People were trying to get back onto their old squadrons. Everybody wanted to go out there. And my squadron was 
lucky enough, I'm going to use inverted to be at the heart of it. So we, my squadron launched the very first night of the 16th, 17th of January, the very first attacks and my formation was slated to attack uh, an airfield in southwestern, uh, southeastern Iraq at about, I think it was meant to be at dawn, but everything slipped for various reasons. So we ended up flying into Iraq in daylight at low level in a tornado, which is what it was designed to do. So my pilot's flying at maybe 30 feet, 40 feet, maybe 600 miles an hour, something like that. But in daylight, everybody can see you. Uh, and for various reasons, we were shot down. As many, there was actually, people forget this, but we lost quite a lot of aircraft across the whole of the, the RF and the Americans lost a lot. The Kuwaitis lost them and the Saudis lost them. Sorry, the uh, uh, Italians lost them. A lot of people were losing aircraft. Uh, so, and we were just, the, I think we were the second aircraft to be shot down. And it was daylight, so there was very little chance of being rescued. So we had to, you know, we had to eject from the aircraft and we were on the ground in the daylight on the run and it was... Uh, it was a lost cause. So you were captured. Yeah. <laughs> it's a strange thing to talk about because often on food podcasts where we're sort of talking about, you know, the fun, celebratory, heavy <laughs> side of, of cooking and food. And I don't want to be flippant when I ask you about what your experiences of food were during that time mm. of capture. But I am also really interested by it. And I think I, I suspect it is something that was pretty memorable for you from that time can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like um or from the food side of things or from being beaten and burnt well i mean I'm, I'm happy to hear about the beaten and burnt <laughs> now i'd love i'd love you to to tell us about it sort of holistically but to give us an idea of the food mm. side of what what that period of time meant for you from an eating well i mean so, so first of all it was you know it was a a, a hideous brutal terrifying experience in which I was nearly killed on, I don't know, three or four occasions. We were regularly beaten. We had cigarettes, cigarettes stubbed out on me. I had burning papers, tissue paper stuffed down the back of my neck. We were beaten with clubs and hoses, chained to chairs. It were, uh, it, and we were bombed by our own side. We were dragged out. It was a hideous, terrifying seven weeks. But I came out the other side. And the simple fact is, Olivia, I wouldn't be here talking to you if I hadn't come out the other side. And the, the worst thing was being paraded on TV. And a lot of your listeners will remember that myself and my pilot, John Peters, were paraded on TV. Uh, we were forced at gunpoint and under threat of death to make those broadcasts. For me, they were the, a deep source of shame and still are 32 years on because I felt as though I was giving in, letting the side down. I hadn't carried out my mission properly. And so they, they were and are a deep sense of shame, but... Everything that I now do came about because I was shot down and paraded on TV. There were other people shot down, but I was paraded on TV. And that's what changed in many ways. I left the Air Force seven years later, but that kind of changed my life. Uh, so it was a vile experience I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Food became just a, a central, pivotal uh, moment for a number of reasons. I talked about food defining your career in the military times. Well, I was a prisoner of war for 49 days, I think. And in 49 days, I think I lost two and a half or three stone. Uh, my good lady wife says I should be popping back sooner rather than later, to be perfectly honest. Uh, and I should. Um, after being on holiday, I need to go back. So there was almost no food. That's the, that's the, the reality. It was, you are, 
And a lock, depending on where you were held, we were held in a couple of different places. You were locked in a, a concrete cell on your own. We were held in a military prison where the military people kind of looked after us a bit. So they would kind of give you a little bowl of water. And if they were, so at one point they gave me a, they were cooking for themselves and I could smell this and I'd oh, salivating. And I got the neck of a chicken that had been roasted, which is not something I would normally order at a restaurant. But gnawing on the neck of a chicken when you haven't eaten for two or three days was absolute joy with warm kind of flea infested water. It was one of the best meals I've ever had. Uh, then we were transferred into the hands of the Muhabarak, which are the secret police. And we were held and that was hideous. That was just a terrible experience. That was really bad. Uh, and that was you'd get food maybe once every day or two days, but it would be kind of a, a small kind of handful of in a little plastic bowl of kind of a watery, greasy soup with nothing in it. So it was just warm, salty liquid uh, and maybe a little bit of water. And that, that was bad. And you again, you would but it, it broke up the day. So if you're in a cell on your own for as I was for one point, I don't know, four weeks, we're not seeing anybody else. Somebody pushing a bowl through the hatch was the highlight of your day. Uh, and so that became uh, defining. And then we were transferred. The, 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 our American cousins bombed the prison that we were in, completely destroyed it, nearly killed us in the process. And we were then transferred to Abu Ghraib, which became notorious during the Second Gulf War for American abuses of prisoners. Well, back in 91... The Iraqi abuse of their own prisoners was pretty horrific, and their abuse of us there was really bad as well, in actual fact. But they seemed to dole out better food. And so on the we we were bus we were there beaten and kind of battered all the way on buses and everything, thrown into this cell. But for the first time in five or six weeks, five weeks, there was eight of us in a cell together. Uh, and so first so you could communicate which was just amazing after not speaking to anybody. But in the morning, because uh, we got there about two in the morning, about seven in the morning, this noise was just astonishing and the smell. So the smell of humans, but the smell of food and the, the noise. And basically, I don't know how many people were in Abu Ghraib, 5,000, 10,000, I don't know. But they opened the cell door and they brought in a washing up bowl, a washing up bowl full of hot dal. And it was the and uh, a massive pile of uh, flatbread. And it, we still talk about it. We have a reunion every year. We still talk about that moment where eight of us were trying to, we were trying to be really polite. So have a little scoop with a bit of, because we had eaten, we were starving, having a little scoop. A couple of guys had broken legs and every, trying to help everybody eat, help everybody move around. And they, somebody says, I still remember seeing, right, okay, I'm going to have a spoon, right? After you, pass the washing up bowl and the piece of and the pile of bread around. And that went, oh my God, that went on for maybe an hour. And people were trying to, right, we divided the bread that was left after, and everybody had a pocket full of bread because we didn't know when we were going to fed next. And so food was, oh, so, because there wasn't any of it. And listen, it's important. We were starving, but when I came home after losing two and a half or three stone, I was still overweight. I'm not starve. I'm not. We're not starving by you know standards of somebody who's suffered an earthquake or a famine, but it was bad, and we. I still remember those smells and the sensations of food. And do you remember what you ate after 
you were safe. Yeah, what, what, what... yeah very much so. So you dream about food. So I dreamt yeah. daily, hourly about food. I could, you, your mouth would be, you'd be salivating. And everything that I wanted was, I'd never had dal before. I'd love curries, but I'd never had dal before, talk at all. And so the first thing, and I said this over and over and over and over again, when I get home, I'm going to have chicken tikka masala, uh, non bread, and I'm going to have a portion of taka doll, which is absolutely what I did with kind of a couple is of pints really? of lager. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. You said before that everything that has happened in your life yeah. after this came about because of it, and I think in in many ways that's that's not hard for someone hearing your story to understand. Yeah. But it, as you also said, it took seven years before you then mm-hmm. left mm-hmm. the air force. Tell us about how you made that move, what the changes were, how it affected your life in a very practical way. Uh, so first of all, when we kept, myself and John Peters came back and the rest of prisoners of war, we just kind of wanted to get back on with our lives back in the military. And lots of people said, are you going to leave? And I, I could not imagine why that would be the case. It's like saying to a, a firefighter who's been burnt or a copper who's been punched in a pub fight, what, are you going to finish now? No, we wanted to stay. I wanted to stay definitely. And I wanted to prove myself because I felt as though I'd failed. So I was desperate to prove myself. And so when I was deployed to Bosnia, maybe two years later, for me, going back into the danger zone was what I wanted to do because I wanted to say, look, I can do it. I'm not going to cock this mission up. I'm going to be a success. And so I stayed in. Uh, Myself and John Peters wrote Tornado Down during that first year uh, of, of being back. It was very unusual then. It was only generals who wrote their memoirs while serving. But so we were the very first people and we sparked. Uh, Andy McNabb came after us. Uh, and mm. all. So we, we sparked that and Tornado Down kind of was a Sunday Times bestseller. But I never thought I'd really kind of write anything again. But then I left the Air Force. I took voluntary redundancy in 1996 to just I'd had enough. And then I started writing again. And 17 books later, I, I left school at 16 and joined up. And I've never had a proper job since. I've never had a proper job. I've always done something. Compl- Being in the military was not a proper job. It was an amazing experience. And then when I left, I'd started writing and doing some journalism and being a bit of a broadcaster, making the odd documentary. So I've never had a proper job. And I can't comprehend Ever. I've never had a CV. We were talking about this. Prince William uh, and Princess Catherine are looking for a head of the royal of their royal household. And we were talking about this over lunch on at the weekend. And somebody said, you should apply for it. Get your CV together. I said, I haven't got a CV. I've never had it. And these, so they're all, nobody could comprehend that at 60, you've never had a CV. I've never, I've never applied for a job apart from the Air Force in 1981. Never, I say 1980, I've never applied for a job. And did you, I know you left school at 16, but did you think about, not even think about writing, did you do writing as a, yeah. as a young person? Um, so it, I, didn't, it didn't just come with Tornado Down uh, after Oh, this. it did. I mean, I, you know, I left, I was lucky enough to go to a grammar school uh, and I got nine, o, eight, eight O levels, failed French, D, because that's counted as a pass these days. Um, and I got an A in English literature and a B in English. And I'd always enjoyed, I loved reading. I read and read and read. When I deployed to the Falklands in 1982 on a ship, I would read a book a day. And I still do. So I've just got back from holiday. And I think in 14 days, I read 10 books. 
It's the only time I read on a holiday, lying on a sun lounger. But I loved to read. But never, I never thought I'd write. I mean, I never thought I'd write. And so writing was an absolute change in my life. And it really was. And it, it has become my life now. But I never thought I'd make a career out of writing. God, no. And tell us about cooking. Because you, you mentioned in passing that it was at 19 when you were out of barracks and, and living with sort of contemporaries yeah. that you started cooking in earnest. Now, now, first of all, you said you were living with three other young servicemen. Yeah. Were they? Were you the cook of the household? Yeah. I feel like you may have been the cook no, of the household. I kind of was. Do I, am I giving off the controlling freak vibe? <laughs> no, I like it. Uh, it's my vibe. Uh, I like it. I really uh, was, yeah. So, you know, I would absolutely cook. And it would be, again, it's not, it wouldn't be back then, it would be fancy. And I've never consulted a recipe book in my life. I kind of made it up as I went along. But it would be simple things like spaghetti bolognese, like chicken pie, like chili con carne, like a, a, a really nice casserole with some either kind of mashed potatoes. But we would sit, the three of us, and we would eat if we were there. And when we went away on exercise... We would have compo rations, you know, the boxes of, and we cooked properly. Even in a trench, you would light your little hexamine stove, which is kind of a fire lighter in a yeah. tin box. And I, we would cook properly. If you had time, you would cook uh, and then eat because um, a hot food when you're out in the middle of nowhere is really important. And so cooking was really important. And then there was an officer who went back into the mess. But then quickly, as soon as I got to my first base in Germany, I moved out into the local area, got my own house. And again, cooking, absolutely key. And I, my, my, the guy I lived with uh, was a vegetarian. Again, 1989, really unusual, really unusual back then. I mean, there would be no vegetarian options in the 80s in the mess. You know, if you wanted vegetarian, you would have the broccoli and the cauliflower and the and somebody would still use the meaty spoon to put it on your plate or something. Of course. I don't remember any vegetarians back then. But he was a vegetarian and he started, he was cooking vegetarian food, something that I would never have tried, but did and really enjoyed. My daughter's a vegetarian. And so now I love meat. I love fish, but I will absolutely make her proper vegetarian food, a version of whatever I'm doing, or will make us all our vegetarian dish or something. Abs absolutely. So it's always been part of my life and still is. So I still cook for my family, not every day because... My daughter's 18 and she's kind of heading off. Uh, my wife works. But regularly, so what have we had this week? I made a, a vegetarian tomato and bean casserole on Tuesday, which is still a bit in there. I did a, a vegetarian pasta bake for them yesterday. Um, and I'm out tomorrow night, but it'll be, I'm going to make mince pie for Saturday for me and my wife. Mince pie, roast potatoes, cauliflower cheese, roast carrots, gravy. Glad you said gravy. Always um, tons. That well, you're from we're from the northeast. I think gravy comes from our veins, doesn't it? Yeah, you had to have a massive. You had to drown everything. I can't bear going to these places where they put a little scoop or a little tiny. No, and I always say, can you get ask the chef to give me another jug? I'll pay for it. I want a portion of gravy. Sorry, I'm, I'm ranting about my gravy. No, no, I like a gravy rant. What is it about cooking? that means something to you? Why, why do you care about it? Why is it a part of your life? I find it really relaxing. I love doing it. I love to be in the kitchen. Uh, I love uh, to entertain. I love to have people around to make a, an, a, either a simple dinner or a really nice 
dinner with people sitting around. I go, you know, it's just my, we had our kitchen redone a little while ago and it's designed so that the, the cooker faces outwards into the nice. space so that, you know, and there's a bench all the way around. Like, you know, like you go to a posh restaurant and you sit around, well, that's what I've done. <laughs> Which sounds now that I say it really quite arrogant. I don't mean it like that, but it's done so that the chef can be part of the whole thing. And I love kind of cooking something for people and sitting down at the table or something like that. And do you eat out as much as you eat and cook? Is that something you enjoy? Not as much. I'm much, my, you know, when my daughter's out or away, which she regularly is now, my wife and I say, should we go out? You know, we go, we're in a village, there's a village pub, there's restaurants in the local area, lots of them, some of them very good. And we go, no, yeah, let's put a pair of tracky bottoms on and a hoodie. I'll I'll knock something up, um, uh, and we'll just stay in. And I I love that sit a cold lager cooking and then a really nice glass of wine or something uh, while we're eating. It's my it's my thing. My really it's my hobby. That's what it is. It's a hobby. And just to finish, John, tell us for you your ultimate meal you are welcome to cook it but you do not have to and it can be as elaborate or as simple as you like mm. well first of all if, if we about uh my daughter when my daughter was 18 a few months ago we went to sushi samba in london i don't know if you've been there to the restaurant in the in the herringy town the 40th floor and i love that it, it, i would rather do that once a year because it's not cheap and have some of the finest food i mean you know all the old kind of kobe beef and stuff like that but it was just delicious so i love all of that but i would always cook something at home so if my if i was cooking something at home for maybe a dozen people i would do something like a slow roast shoulder of lamb get a lamb from the local farm a, a proper big piece cook it for maybe seven hours at 120 degrees so it's falling off the bone because basically you can be part, you don't have, then you're not, the chef's not cooking all the time because mm. you prepare everything in advance. So you cook it, it's ready. Uh, and then you put it back under the grill kind of 10 minutes before serving to crisp the skin up. I would do dauphinois potatoes, a huge dish because you can do them the day before. You bung them back in the oven for 40 minutes to heat them up. Blanch some green beans and then saute them quickly in a bit of butter, garlic and lemon, and then make a red wine gravy Everything can be prepared in advance. You can knock it together in 20 minutes and it is absolutely delicious. And it's really delicious and it looks fantastic when it's laid out, but it's not that much of a pain to do. So something like that, I guess. Something like that. Do you have a sweet tooth? Would you have pudding? Oh, God, yeah. I, uh, jam <laughs> jam roly-poly from school, mm -hmm. jam roly-poly and custard, which were thick, which flopped out in lumps out of a jug. And again, jam roly-poly steamed, not baked. Mm. So it shouldn't be have a crisp outside. It should have a soft, unctuous outside and be soft all the way through. Jam roly-poly, custard, always. Hot custard or cold custard? Oh, are you mad? Hot custard. How can you have cold <laughs> custard? No, hot custard. Just, just have Made to. with bird's custard powder and whole milk I'm and ready. sugar. That. That's custard. And None of your fancy custard. stuff with egg yolks. Bert's custard powder. No creme anglaise. <laughs> John, that's perfect. Thank, Thank you. you so much for joining Table Talk. Great pleasure. And John's latest book, Eject Eject, published by Simon & Schuster, is available to buy now. 
Thank you for joining us on the Spectator's Food and Drink podcast. For more recipes, food history, stories and drinks, you can head to the Spectator website. <laughs>